Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lin Shanjiang. Today, I'm so delighted to have Professor Mia Chongxie with us here on air. Professor Xie, would you like to say hi to the listeners? Hi, everybody. Thank you for attending our interview. So Professor Xie is Associate Professor of Chinese and Comparative East Asian Literature at Dartmouth College. Her research involves modern Chinese, Korean, and Japanese literatures. Broadly, she is interested in how people from the margins, geographical or metaphorical, gain power, find identity, and establish connections through transcultural negotiation and co-formation. Recently, I listened to the talk given by Professor Xie, organized by the Center for Taiwan Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara through which I got the fascinating news that Professor Xie's book about literary Manchuria is going to be published. I first heard about this exciting project through the Mandarin Chinese podcast called In Betweenness or Shi Cha. In one of the episodes, Professor Xie is one of the guests discussing the changing power dynamics of Sinophone studies, where she also touched upon her project. So again, I feel really inspired by this particular project. And now a published book. Congratulations. Thank you. Before discussing with Professor Xie about her experience of research and writing, let me offer the listeners a short overview of the book, Territorizing Manchuria, the Transnational Frontier and Literatures of East Asia. Xiao Hong, Yang Samsao, Abe Kobo, and Zhong Lihe, these iconic literary figures from China, Korea, Japan, and Taiwan, all described Manchuria extensively in their literary works. Now China's not East, but a contested frontier in the first half of the 20th century, Manchuria has inspired writers from all over East Asia to claim it as their own, employing novel themes and forms for engaging nation and empire in modern literature. Many of these works have been canonized as quintessential examples of national or nationalist literature, even though they also problematize the imagined boundedness and homogeneity of nation and national literature at its core. 
through the theoretical lens of literary territorialization, Mia Xie reconceptualizes modern Manchuria as a critical site for making and unmaking national literatures in East Asia. Professor Xie ventures into hitherto uncharted territory by comparing East Asian literatures in three different languages and analyzing their close connections in the transnational frontier. By revealing how writers of different nationalities constantly enlisted transnational elements within a nation-centered body of literature, Territorizing Manchuria uncovers a history of literary co-formation at the very site of division and may offer insights for future reconciliation in the region. So without further ado, let's get started with the interview. The first question is always this. So what motivates you to do this whole research? Thank you, Lingshan, for this interview. The project uh, started with the curiosity, both about literature and about myself. Uh, when I was reading Chinese, Japanese, and Korean literature out of pure interest, I noticed that I come across Manchuria or Dongbei in Chinese way more frequently than I had expected. As someone who grew up in China, I was familiar with the so-called Northeastern writers or Dongbei作家群, which conventionally referred to a group of modern Chinese writers who were born in Manchuria but moved to China proper in the 1930s and become influential writers in modern China. But then I found that Abe Kobo, a Japanese writer I was fond of reading, spent most of his first 20-some years in Manchuria before returning to Japan after 1945. And Yang Chang Saab and Kang Jiang E, two of my beloved modern Korean writers, both lived in Manchuria for extended periods of time. Manchuria also appeared in literary works from across East Asia more frequently than my impression of the place had promised. So why was Manchuria such a high-profile place in modern East Asian literature? Why did I not know this despite having received a more formal education in modern Chinese, Korean, Japanese literatures as well as comparative literature? What does it mean for Manchuria to be a place of significance, not only for political and military contestation, but also for literary and cultural production in the region of Northeast Asia? Those are the questions that motivated me to start this project. I recall this motivation in the opening pages of my book, but what I did not close in my book is that I was also curious about why Manchuria appeared so often in literary work that struck a chord in my heart personally. In other words, why is it that I enjoyed reading works from Manchuria, about Manchuria, or by writers with a Manchurian background so much that I started to look for those writings intentionally, even before I decided to conduct a research project on the topic? Clearly, there must be a personal connection between Manchuria and me. Although I grew up in southern China along the Yangtze River and had never been to Manchuria at the time, so my research project about writers writing in or about Manchuria was also a project of self-exploration. And I have to confess that I don't think I've found answers to these questions even now I've completed the book. Yeah, that's super interesting. How do you come to certain kind of literature that you really love and what's the origin? That's a question that's always 
also kind of lingering on my mind as well when I'm thinking about certain writers that I'm working on. But that's super interesting to know. So now let's really come into this particular book, Territorizing Manchuria. In your book, the central concept is literary territorization. You emphasize two key arguments surrounded by this particular concept. That is, as I quote, literature territorizes and literature is being territorized. So could you elaborate on this particular concept? How does your concept relate to the historical changes of the territory of Manchuria? And how does territory relate to art and literature? Mm -hmm. The two arguments that literature territorializes and literature is being territorialized are precisely the answers to some of the above-mentioned questions that I arrived at through my research. I use literature territorializes to depict the dialogical dynamism that I identified among works about Manchuria by writers from different national backgrounds. Politically, Manchuria was a contested frontier during most of the first half of 20th century. For those of you who are not familiar with Manchuria, it was once the sacred Manchu homeland, the home of the people who conquered China and established the Qing dynasty in 1644. By the time Qing was replaced by the Republic of China in 1911, Manchuria was predominantly populated by Han Chinese. At the same time, Russia colonized northern Manchuria in the early 20th century, whereas Japan started to expand its imperial influence from the south and eventually took over the entirety of Manchuria through the Manchurian Incident in 1931. From 1932 to 1945, the Japanese maintained a puppet regime they called Manchu Guo, which they claimed was an independent, multi-ethnic nation-state. So not a colony, but a nation state, according to the Japanese. In terms of literature, writers identifying as Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Russian, and so on, were all writing in or about Manchuria during the period, and they mostly wrote in their respective languages for their respective national readerships. So at first, I didn't expect much in the way of interactions among these diverse bodies of writing, except for some occasional cases in which they translated each other's work under Manchu Kuo's ideological umbrella of racial harmony. As I read the Chinese, Korean, and Japanese texts side by side. However, I found that they exhibit a shared desire to claim a space for the nation. It's too bad that I don't read Russian, so I cannot take Russian literature into consideration here. In other words, each text implies a desire to claim territory for the Japanese people, or the Chinese people, or the Korean people. Recall that these literary claims were being staked in a multinational frontier that in real life was being intensely contested by all of these nations. In literature, this space claiming could take the form of uh, representing a geographical space in a way that makes it national, or carving out a linguistic or cultural space for the nation as an imaginary territory, or both. To make this kind of claims amidst multinational contestation, these writers 
had to position their nations in relation to other nations on a metaphorical map and constantly adjusted this positioning as a response to other nations' ever-shifting self-positioning. This was a dynamic and dialogical process that ultimately put the multilingual texts about Manchuria in overt or covered conversation with each other. In my book, I use literature territorializes to depict this dynamism. This task of imagining nation and empire through intense transnational negotiation, I argue, propelled frontier writers to come up with forms of national literature that went beyond the established traditions of modern literature in their respective national centers. The frontier texts, therefore, generated new forms of national literature while also destabilizing the notion that national literature is an entity with closed borders. As for how literature is being territorialized, this answers the question of why I didn't know about the literary significance of Manchuria despite my education in Chinese, Korean, Japanese literature. I didn't know because modern literature is taught through national literary histories, which are written from national perspectives. Manchuria is a peripheral place for all the modern nation states surrounding it, so it is often marginalized in national literary histories from East Asia. Furthermore, the transnational dynamism of frontier literature cannot be captured in full in any single national literary history, and so it has been compartmentalized into different national pieces in different national literary histories. In my book, I use literature is being territorialized to depict this process by which modern literature in East Asia was demarcated by multiple institutions of national literary histories, especially in the post-war period, which led to the marginalization and compartmentalization of some literary forms for example, frontier literature. Yeah, I think in your answer, you already touched upon a very interesting and very classical literary discussion about how to characterize uh, literature. And usually we characterize literature into national literatures. Also, you have this very interesting claim about how literature of Manchuria can actually open up the concept and also practice of literature about a nation. So in chapter one, you offer this overview of different definitions of literature of Manchuria in the context of mainland China, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan. And you call this as national approach. But this kind of national approach, I think it's very different from what we usually hear and understand this word. So at the same time, you also echo the previous scholarship and call for an analytical framework beyond the Japanese empire to account for this body of literature, which I also really echo in my own research. So could you discuss further about the relationship between literature of Manchuria and also national literature, and also in what ways your analytical approach challenge and complicate the ways we understand nationalities, ethnicities, and the sense of belonging? Great question. The relationship between literature of Manchuria and national literature is perhaps where I struggled most in my research. On the one hand, from the pattern of literary territorialization that I identified in Literature of Manchuria, 
I see clearly that most of the writers I was reading were obsessed with the notion of nation and ethnicity, even though some of them showed suspicion of those notions as well. On the other hand, the well-established scholarship on frontier and borderland literature and culture elsewhere in the world, especially from the American West and the U.S.-Mexico borderland, more often than not, envisions the literature as a site of resistance to the national and imperial order. So in one word, um, my primary texts and theoretical sources did not go well with each other, and I spent a long time swinging between the two. As I read more primary texts, especially with a comparative approach, I felt I was moving closer to the nature of the thing. A national approach has its place in my research, first because the majority of the writers I study were writing with a clear consciousness of themselves as belonging to a nation, and sometimes with a strong drive that they were writing for their nation. Second, many frontier writers or frontier texts have been canonized as quintessential national or nationalist authors or texts in East Asia. For example, the Chinese Northeastern writers, the Japanese writer Abel Kobo, the Taiwanese writer Zhong Lihe, and a short story, The Red Hills, by the Korean writer Kim Dong-in. Though I am critical of the treatment of literature of Manchuria in national literary histories in East Asia, this mechanism of canonizing frontier literature is crucial for understanding the significance of literature of Manchuria as a generative site of national literature in East Asia. This national approach, however, is different from the conventional understanding of national literature, either as an entity with closed borders or as an entity that developed under the influence of a cultural other, for example, Western literature or Japanese literature, which is to say that um, my study is not an, an influence study. In frontier literature, nations and empires are imagined only through intense transnational negotiation and contestation. This condition propelled those frontier writers to come up with forms of national literature that went beyond the established tradition of modern literature in their respective national centers. And that is why some of their works were later canonized in those centers as pioneers of a new trend in national literature. But this condition also asks us to question our existing understanding of national literature because it portrays the development of national literatures in modern East Asia as a process of co-formation in contestation as the entire region went through the difficult challenges of modern transformation. These national literatures, therefore, all have open and contested boundaries between them and their geographical neighbors, and it was the circulation across those boundaries through the openings that promoted internal renewal and growth within a given national literature. So to conclude, in what ways does this approach challenge and complicate the ways we understand nationalities, ethnicities, and the sense of belonging? I think it pushes us out of the dichotomy of being either nationalist or anti-nationalist, or either believing in or not believing in ethnicity as a fundamental category of generating identity and a sense of belonging. 
It also emphasizes the process of the formation of national or ethnic identities and awareness as a regional and a global process that can only take place through dynamic transcultural negotiation. Accordingly, those identities and this awareness are ever-shifting, always relational, and are not closed nor essential. That said, they can't be easily overcome or deconstructed, as one cannot just shed the long modern history in which those categories have been the guiding principles for organizing communities and structuring people's sense of belonging. Instead, in my book, I aimed at a reconceptualization of notions of nationality and ethnicity through reconsidering transnational relations among geographical neighbors on a regional scale. That's really fascinating. Now we are really entering uh, each specific chapters and about specific writers. So for chapter two, you were discussing some of the Chinese writers who are very canonical in all kinds of senses, like Duan Mo Hongliang and Xiao Hong. But then you offer a very interesting reading about them from a different perspective. For example, when you discuss Duan Mo Hongliang's ethnicity and his writing, there are two very interesting quotes that I'm having here. One is, a fictionalization was crucial to the success of the author's literary territorialization of Manchuria, so was the concealment of it. If the evocation of the literary form of fiction was among his tools for literary territorialization, so was his evocation of autobiography as an alibi for fiction. And the other interesting quote is, concealing the fictionality or the constructedness of the discourse of the modern nation is a common technique for naturalizing the nation. So we're still continuing our discussion about nation and also literature. But at the same time, you have this very interesting concept called mediation hyphen concealment. And then you talk about different contents like native soil and also different forms like fiction and autobiography. So how does this particular concept connect to the contents and the forms of writing? So I use mediation and concealment to describe the mechanism of literary territorialization in works by the Chinese Northeastern writers, as you introduced very well, that this is a canonical group of Chinese writers. This is a group of writers who were born in Manchuria, but relocated to China proper to become prominent writers in modern Chinese literature after Japan took over the region in 1931. Writing mostly about their homeland with nationalist sentiment, they have been canonized in Chinese literary history as the pioneers of nationalist and anti-Japanese literature in modern China. Most critics, however, have taken the Chinese Manchuria that is represented in their work for granted, which is to say Manchuria was, of course, a Chinese land, and the depiction of Manchuria as a Chinese land in their work was, of course, a realistic representation of historical reality. In both Chinese and English scholarship, there is a long tradition of reading Chinese Northeastern writers' representation of Manchuria realistically and autobiographically as a transparent portrayal of what life was really like in the frontier. But I argue that Regardless of the political sovereignty of Manchuria, these writers had to put a fair amount of creative labor into representing Manchuria as an inherently Chinese land, 
because in reality, it was a contested frontier populated by multiple peoples at the time. In other words, their writing involved a process of territory making, a process of making Manchuria Chinese, which in turn involved a heavy mediation of the geographical space through literary reconstruction. The necessity of a nationalistic spatial mediation led the authors to make certain thematic and stylistic choices that contributed to the literary charm of the works, as well as their canonization in literary history. This process of mediation, however, can only achieve its designed purpose when it is concealed from the readers, so that the readers accept that the representation is an unmediated report of the reality. In my book, I analyze how the frontier space is mediated in the Chinese Northeastern writers' literary text, and then how the mediation is in turn concealed by the author and in the process of reception and canonization to showcase how literary territorialization works in literature by this group of writers. One example that I discuss closely in this chapter is uh, Xiao Hong's classical piece, The Field of Life and Death. Now coming to Duan Mu Hongliang's work, the Manchuria-Mongolian frontier was represented not only as a Chinese land, but also as a land where the Han Chinese played a dominant role in the history and the present of the frontier. In other words, Duan Mu, in his novel, The Coaching Banner Plans, made Manchuria a Han-dominated, multi-ethnic Chinese frontier, which was in sync with the political discourses in China proper at the time. Duan Mu achieved this in part by depicting a protagonist family with Han patriarchs and multi-ethnic peripheral family members, as the epitome of the broader social and ethnic structure of the frontier. So that's a hand domination of multi-ethnic members, right? Duanmu then published a sequel to the novel that an innocent reader would have read as an autobiography, which led his readers to believe that both the novel and the sequel were autobiographical, and this perception confirmed the authenticity of his representation of both the protagonist family and the frontier landscape more broadly. So if you actually go back to read the sequel, the prehistory of the coaching, there were so many hints, clues, lead-ins that basically shout out to the readers that this is autobiographical, this is about my own family history. But it's not. It was only in the 1980s that Duanmu clarified that the sequel was a work of fiction, not an autobiography, and that he himself grew up in a Manchu family, not a Han family. So to sum it up, Duanmu first played with both the content and the form of his writing to mediate the frontier space in accordance with the political definition of the modern Chinese nation-state at the time, and then concealed the process of mediation, or 
the fictionality of his literary reconstruction. Because I'm also doing a modern Chinese literature, so reading this chapter really inspired me, and it's such a interesting reading from a very innovative way. And now we are coming to the third chapter, which is about the Manchu Guo Chinese writer Gu Ding, which I really have very little knowledge about. But again, it's very fascinating to read this chapter as well. And in this chapter, you were talking about the so-called frontier subjectivity of Gu Ding, and then his work is also very complicated in the ways of discussing the ideas of nation, ethnicity, and state. And also, you point out his. Language experiment, including the Japanization of Chinese language, and we know that this particular effort has been pretty prevalent since the turn of the twentieth century. But I'm very curious why Gooding's effort can be interpreted in different ways and can become so problematic. For some of the audience who are not familiar with Gooding, Gooding was a Chinese writer. Who wrote and published actively under the Manchu Guo regime? In my book, I use frontier subjectivity to describe Gu Ding's strategy of enlisting transnational elements from the frontier cultural space for the purpose of national survival, without a fixed commitment to a certain political ideology. Here, national survival is different from nationalism. Because it may take the form of colonial collaboration, or more precisely, the compromise of some elements in the national culture for the sake of preserving some other elements that the individual deems more crucial for national survival. And the reason that Gu Ding was so keen about national survival was not so much a matter of patriotism as a matter of necessity. Because people's access to power and resources in the contested frontier at the time was most often determined in the name of the nation they belonged to. In the frontier space of colonial Manchuria, where Gooding lived and wrote, nation, ethnicity, and state were all extremely fluid concepts、uh, that different groups of people defined at their discretion for the purpose of. Surviving and thriving under multinational contestation. Here, I take the Chinese as an example. While the Japanese defined the Chinese as one of the many ethnicities in the multi-ethnic Manchu Guo, Gu Ding, in his work and speech, certainly framed the Chinese as a nation and not an ethnicity in Manchu Guo, so as to maintain a connection with Chinese people in China proper. That said, he could not claim a connection to the Chinese state in Manchu Guo, as Chinese people in Manchu Guo were supposed to stay loyal to only one state, that is the state of Manchu Guo. As you point out, there are many cases of Japanized Chinese in modern Chinese literature. There are many loan words from modern Japanese in modern vernacular Chinese, the language in which modern Chinese writer writes in. Later on, one can often identify Japanized Chinese in literary works from Japanese colonial Taiwan or Shanghai. What is interesting about Gu Ding is that he ambitiously attempted to construct a multinational connection through his linguistic experiment as a strategy of frontier survival. In his essay and fiction, Gu Ding was able to frame this Japanized Chinese language. 
first as an enrichment of the Chinese national language established in China proper. So he argues that his linguistic experiment contributes to the development of the Chinese national language. Second, he promoted his linguistic experiment as an effort of perfecting the Manchu Guo national language because Chinese was one of the Manchu Guo national languages. And so this Manchu Guo, Chinese as Manchu Guo national language that is Japanized recognizes Japanese influence in Chinese language. And so his linguistic experiment echoes a Manchu Guo nation building discourse. Third, Gudin considered the Japanized Chinese language an acknowledgement of the Japanese imperial language that the Japanese believed could eventually incorporate all other languages in the colonies. So the hybrid language becomes an endorsement of the Japanese imperial superiority. In short, Gudin constructed a multilateral connections around his linguistic ex experiments intentionally and explicitly. And I argue that this was his way of maximizing a Chinese cultural territory in the Japanese colonial multilingual frontier. As you can see, in Gudin's case, notions such as nation, ethnicity, and state are carefully evoked in his own fashion to support his enterprise of cultural territorialization. In this case, the compromise of the connotation of the national become instrumental for the expansion of the denotation of the national. This frontier subjectivity, however, has its limit under a colonial unequal power relationship. Gooding's novel, New Life, a fiction based on the bubonic plague that broke out in Manchukuo in 1940, was in many senses a materialization of his linguistic experiment and frontier subjectivity that I explained above. But Gooding did not know at the time that the plague was in effect engineered by the Japanese 731 army as a biochemical trial. It is ironic to see how hard Gooding worked out a literary maneuver in order to claim more cultural territory for the Chinese under Japanese domination through the novel. And yet, the novel was all about a sheer colonial violence that he did not know at the time. So... While it is important to acknowledge the full complexity of his literary ambition in a frontier setting, it is equally important to be fully aware of the limit of such ambition under unequal colonial power relationship. Yeah, when I was reading that story, it was kind of cruel in retrospect because he may not know very well about everything that was going to happen. But then looking in a retrospect, we know, oh, there are so many limits and Gooding is characterized in a certain way in different national contexts. And somehow I feel that's pretty helpless of him um, to do everything. But again, I think it's really interesting to read such a complex figure through your concept about literary territorialization. Now we are coming to chapter four, and it's about the Korean literature of Manchuria. And when I was reading this chapter, I have to admit that this was the least familiar part of the whole book, but I'm still very interested in reading it. And I find there seems to be a so-called racial or ethnic triangulation. 
if I may borrow, Asian American studies scholar Clara Jean Kim's concept. And of course, she's discussing Asian Americans in the United States. But I also find this kind of triangulation in your book among Korean, Chinese, and Japanese through translation. So in your discussion, you use the term uh, multifocalization. Could you elaborate on this complicated translating process then? Indeed, many scholars have studied ethnic triangulation with regard to the Manchurian Korean community. Like I was inspired by scholars such as Hyunok Park, Naoyang Ami Kwon, and Andrew Schmidt on this point of ethnic triangulation in Manchurian Korean community. This triangulation brings our understanding of modern East Asia beyond a Japanese imperial framework, and in particular beyond a colonial dichotomy of the colonizer and the colonized. Modern Korean immigration to Manchuria started in the mid-19th century during China's Qing Dynasty, way before the Japanese Empire dominated the region. And entering the 20th century, Japan utilized the Korean immigrants in Manchuria as their proxy to facilitate their expansion. So this trilateral relationship surrounding Manchurian Koreans showcases the intricate historical process in modern East Asia where new empires coexisted and competed before regional power moved from the former to the latter eventually. In this complicated regional history, the roles of the dominant and the dominated, as well as that of the perpetrator and the victim, do not correspond to the colonizer and the colonized straightforwardly. Rather, different parties take different roles at different times, and so their political identities were fluid, ever-changing, situational, and plural. The translation of Korean literature in and about Manchuria offers a critical lens for me to examine this regional relationship through literary exchanges. In my book, I discuss the Japanese and Chinese translations of the Korean writer Kim Dong-in's classic piece published in the 1930s titled The Red Hills. It's a story about the victimization of the Manchurian Korean community that has conventionally been considered a masterpiece of Korean national literature. My study of translation shows that while the Korean version advocated for Korean rights in Manchuria and aroused nationalist sentiments among Korean readers, the Japanese translation and the Chinese translation of this story in the 1940s, when read in their respective anthological and social contexts, so they were being included in different anthologies, speak for the Japanese and the Chinese claims to the Manchurian territory, respectively. Because a story about the Manchurian Korean community would inevitably involve the complicated triangular relationship between the three East Asian nations that I summarized above, different national readers could read different roles into different characters, as well as different relations between characters, therefore opening up different interpretative spaces in the same text that could even be in conflict with each other. These interpretative spaces, however, are invisible when one reads only the original Korean version. It is through the practice of translation 
that they become visible. This is what I call a multifocalization in the close reading of frontier texts that, in Kim's case, is enabled through literary translation. Reading frontier literature from multiple points of view and with multiple focal points offer us an opportunity to re-examine and reimagine regional literary and cultural relations. In the same chapter, I also discuss Manchurian Korean writers' obsession with having their work translated into other languages. So to clarify, Kim Dong-in wrote The Red Hills before he ever visited Manchuria, and he only visited Manchuria briefly in the 1940s afterwards. The Manchurian Korean writers that I refer here are Korean writers who have lived and wrote in Manchuria for several years, if not several decades. Most of them moved to Manchuria after the mid-1930s, after the Japanese began to radically promote Japanese cultural and linguistic assimilation in Korea. In Manchuria, under the Manchukuo slogan of racial harmony, these writers were legally allowed to write in the Korean language, though the Japanese did not really like that. So seeking to have their Korean work translated in other languages in Manchukuo, ideally Japanese, become a token of recognition of a Korean linguistic, literary, and cultural identity. But despite their consistent effort throughout the Manchukuo regime, this group of writers weren't able to have any of their work translated into Japanese, and only one piece translated into Chinese as far as the existing archival materials show. My book discusses how literary translation in this case reveals the complicated relations among the Koreans, the Japanese, and the Chinese in the region, and why the Chinese translation of the Korean work should not be read naively as a symbol of anti-colonial solidarity, but rather reflects many of the contradictions in regional relations. So now we are entering the next chapter about the Japanese writer, uh, Abe Kobo, and you discuss this through a particular perspective called interregional comparative perspective. So I'm wondering, what do you mean by this particular perspective when discussing Abe Kobo's post-war border writing? Is it possible for Abe to cross or overcome borders? Abe Kobo is, a, most of people know, is a world-famous post-war Japanese writer. Um, he lived in Manchuria for the majority of the time between the ages of 1 and 22. Past scholarship on him either uh, puts him in the framework of post-war Japanese literature, which is a national literature approach, or discusses the influence of Western literature on him, or treats him as a figure of some uh, universal literary and philosophical value. Only in very recent years have we seen scholarship that deals with uh, Abe's Manchurian experience as more than a biographical background or a setting for some of his stories. Some scholars, for example, Toba Koji, Saka Kenda, and Lian Yingshan, connect the theme of the border that appears extensively in Abe's early post-war writing to his earlier experience of living in a border, the colonial society in Manchuria. They mostly treat the border as a symbol of colonial hierarchy and the author's Manchurian experience as the source of 
abets a strong anti-colonial thought in the early post-war era. By intra-regional comparative perspective, I first mean to study Abel Kobo not merely within the terrain of Japanese literature as a national author, nor merely as a figure of world literature, but within a regional East Asian context. Because Abel was a product of the regional circulation of people, ideas, and ideologies. Second, I hope to move beyond a colonizer-colonized dichotomy in approaching Abel Kobo within a regional context. So the Manchurian experience did give rise to his border thoughts as a source of negation, uh, that is, he developed an anti-colonial thought out of a negation of the Japanese colonial regime of Manchukuo. But more importantly, I argue, before becoming a source of negation, Manchuria shaped his way of seeing the world through borders in the first place. Abe's experience of the repeated emphasis on the notion of borders while living in Japanese colonial Manchuria, for example, on the Manchukuo national borders and border issues, their internal divisions and the differentiations among different ethnicities and so on. So basically, border was a central concept in the public uh, discourse of Manchukuo. And this experience was first a shaping force for Abe, a formative force for Abe, and only then become a point of negation for his anti-colonial thoughts after 1945. And in order to acknowledge this significance of Manchuria in Abe's post-war thought and writing, I first needed to approach Japanese Manchuria beyond a colonial dichotomy and as a chimera frontier regime, to use the historian Yamamuro Shinichi's word, with ambiguous self-definition and complicated ethnic relations. I then needed to approach Abbas post-war writing beyond his own reflection, because he mostly treated his Manchurian experience as no more than a point of negation in his own reflection, which in my chapter I disagree. So that was a difficult task, but what allowed me to achieve these goals is a comparative reading within a regional context in which I compare themes, terms, and structure that appeared in Abbas' post-war writings with literary and cultural products by others during the Manchukuo period. You asked whether it was possible for Abbas to cross or overcome borders. So in my opinion, this was one of Abbas' major philosophical pursuits for a long time in the post-war era. But his trajectory is long, and his worldview in the 1970s was much less shaped by the notion of border than his worldview was in the 1950s. Instead, he became more interested in what he called the contemporaneity, which is the observation that modern beings across a vast range of geographical locations on the globe belong to the same time and share similar modern sensibilities. So this is an inspiring thought, and in my book, I ask how much we can rely on this sense of contemporaneity to overcome divisions among East Asian people today due to the unsolved historical issues. 
while a bag gradually moved away from the Manchurian frontier and border thought in his writing, others in East Asia have not. And I hope my book, by suggesting a refreshing way of revisiting regional literature and history through frontier territorialization, may contribute to overcoming those divisions. In the future, great. So we have touched upon other major chapters in your book, discussing different writers. Now I really want to move to the last writer you were discussing in the conclusion, actually, and you mentioned this perspective of cross frontier, which I understand as two frontiers of Manchuria and also Taiwan during the Japanese colonial period, and. What's also very interesting is Zhongli He's different identities. So his Hakka Chinese, his Hakka Taiwanese as well. So I'm wondering how do you work out this whole cross frontier perspective in your discussion about Zhongli He? Yeah, Zhongli He was more or less an exceptional case in my book because. He went to Manchuria in 1930s when both Taiwan and Manchuria were Japanese colonies, and so as a Taiwanese, unlike Chinese, Korean, Japanese people, they didn't really have a strongly rooted community in Manchuria, and it is very difficult for you to say that all、oh, the Taiwanese wanted to claim a part of Manchuria for their own nations as well, right? I nevertheless want to highlight his Manchurian experience and、uh, writings about Manchuria. As a generative moment for his overall writing, which contributed to his canonization in post-war Taiwan as a native soil writer, and so and so on. Well, first of all, his writing in and about Manchuria was relatively neglected in the scholarship of him compared to his other work in the post-war Taiwan.、Right? And second, when people think of Manchuria and Taiwan. People mostly focus on their common positioning as Japanese colonies at the time, and it is true that that is why Zhongli He could travel from Taiwan to Manchuria in the first place. But I found it interesting that for Zhongli He, both Taiwan and Manchuria were some sort of a frontier. So. Frontier, of course, there is no geographical space that's、uh, by nature frontier. Frontier is when you conceive this space as being, say, marginal or peripheral, but nevertheless attached to a national center. And so, in Zhongli He's work, especially in thinking of his identity as not just a Taiwanese but a, a Hakka Taiwanese, you see ways of framing his identity as a Frontier identity in many senses, and then when he went to Manchuria, he basically was faced a similar situation where he had to claim identity, sense of belonging, and so and so on through again intense transnational negotiations that we can find in say his work Taiwan Hotel and other writings related to Manchuria. So eventually. Well, first, it became difficult for him to find that sense of belonging in this kind of frontier context. But then, second, it is also true that his sense of belonging was preconditioned by this kind of frontier and transnational context. So this is the. Context or framework through which I then go back to his novel, The Lishan Farm, one of the quintessential example of a Taiwanese nativist literature, 
in post-war period. When we read the Lishan Farm, actually we see a fairly closed world with fairly simple human relations being void of external influences, including the Japanese colonial influences. And many have criticized that. Why didn't you write more about the Japanese influences in Lishan Farm, right? But that closure is actually his response to the frontierization of his identities and sense of belonging in both his writing about Taiwan and about Manchuria earlier in his life, or some later in his life as well. I think in Yuan Xiangren, people from the original homeland, the process through which identity, like a national identity is constructed through transnational negotiation is very well presented in that piece. So basically, I study Zhong Lihe's effort of closing both a territory and an identity in Lishan Farm and other work as a response of his cross-frontier experience and writing. So this is my own take of Zhong Lihe's cross-frontier experience and writing and its significance to some of his most canonical work. And this Enclosure in response to frontierization is not merely about the theme of the work or the construction of the space of the work, enclosed space, and so on and so on. It's also about a formal enclosure. So in national literature, like especially from Zhong Lihe's case, we notice an effort of enclosing both the space that the literature is writing about and the form so that you have a coherent form with say, character setting, development of a sense of identity and, and belonging, and an ending. And when the Lishan Farm ends at episode that the two protagonists decided to leave the space, and then the story also ends here so that you can close a space with a formal closure, right? This form and content go, like, for an enclosure go well hand-in-hand in hand with each other. And in contrast, we actually see a difficulty of closing not only the story but also the form in both his work about the transnational negotiation in Manchuria and about the transnational negotiation in Taiwan. Think about all those work about Manchuria, they're either unfinished or like finished abruptly or had to encounter multiple rounds of radical rewriting before publication. And when we think of peoples of from the original homeland, Yuan Xiangren, his communication with Zhong Zhaozheng showed that Zhong Zhaozheng thought that this piece really had structural issues. It has a loose structure. And when he sent this piece to editors, the editor were like, this doesn't look like a literary work of fiction. We cannot publish it. It looked more like an autobiography, right? So it speaks so much about what Zhong Lihe considered a failure in the form of the story, and yet I consider it a necessary formal consequence of trying to write a story about a national longing through fragmented pieces of transnational negotiation. So in Zhong Lihe's case, what I see of the struggle on both the theme and formal level actually applies to many other writers that I discussed in this book. So I thought it would be a 
good ending of the book, and Julie He is indeed the, the epilogue of my uh, epilogue of my book. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So, as we have discussed all the chapters of your book, we are moving to another very important question about your future. So, what will be your next research project? So I'm currently working on my second monograph about Chinese ethnic Korean literature, and I also have a third project about trauma and literature in East Asia. And this is a project that I've been preparing for more than a decade. So I look forward to the day when I can bring these two projects in rotation. Great. Thank you so much for、uh, this wonderful interview. I think readers can get different knowledges about different national contexts and also different literatures. Looking forward to your new projects, definitely. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank you very much, Inshan, for this interview. I hope the audience will read my book. And if you have any feedback or comments, always feel free to reach out to me. My email address is on my Dartmouth profile page. Thank you very much. Thank you.